Welcome to Clear and Present, a bi-weekly podcast of the Institute for Biodefense Research, where we bring subject matter experts to the fore to discuss their views and insights to current topics and issues at the interface of the biomedical sciences and technology, biosecurity, and biodefense. Hello, and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James Giordano from the Institute of Biodefense Research. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Nicholas Wright. A true polymath, Dr. Wright is an affiliated scholar with Georgetown University, the University College of London, Intelligent Biology in New America. He combines neuroscientific, behavioral, and technological insights to understand decision-making in a variety of different settings, politics, international confrontations, in ways that are viable and useful for policy international governance, regulation, and oversight. Again, a true polymath, Dr. Wright is both a physician and a neurocognitive scientist. I've had the pleasure of working with Dr. Wright and the privilege of working with him aboard the Strategic Multilayer Assessment Group at the Joint Staff of the Pentagon, where his ongoing work has really been focused upon that area intersection between the biological sciences, cognitive sciences, and how they can interface international relations, national security, intelligence, and defense. And Nick was a practicing neurologist in Oxford and in London before receiving his PhD from the laboratory at University College London that spun out Google's pioneering AI unit, DeepMind. He worked on nuclear strategy as a fellow for the Carnegie Endowment in Washington, DC, and he regularly advises government and a variety of businesses. He is the author of numerous academic and general publications and is editor of the book, Artificial Intelligence, China, Russia, and the Global Order. He received his medical degree from UCL and received a bachelor's in health policy from Imperial College London, a master's in science and neuroscience, and a PhD from neuroscience, both from the UCL, and is elected member of the Royal College of Physicians. Nick, it is always a pleasure. Welcome. Hi, thank you very much, Jim, and thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure once again. So uh, let, let's jump right into the discussion, because I think what's so important is that Late last year, you penned a report for the Joint Staff of the Pentagon entitled Cognitive Defense, the Joint Force in a Digitizing World. Well, I guess the key question here is, uh, knowing the work of the Pentagon, not only as it relates domestically, but internationally, what's the interest there with regard to cognitive defense? Thanks, Jim. I mean, so I think that the what we've seen over the past few years is that adversaries have become ever more sophisticated and capable in using information. And uh, I think we can assume that that those weapons are going to be wielded against the joint force in a future conflict. Uh, and so what they asked me to think about was the interaction of the human side and the technological side. So service personnel, their families and their friends, they're humans. You know, we're all, we're all humans. Um, and what adversaries and other destabilizing forces are threatening to do is to sow discord and disruption amongst those humans in order to degrade their collective capability to stop them cooperating uh, to achieve the missions that they need, that we need them to achieve. Uh, and in order to do that, 
uh, adversaries can harness the powerful new digital technologies that are immersing our lives. I'm literally obviously speaking to you now uh, across the internet. I'm surrounded by digital devices. So are you um, and, and, and people will be listening to this podcast on digital technologies. So the question was, uh, or the, the thing they asked me to do was to think about how can we protect the humans in the joint force from uh, adversary uh, 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 information campaigns. And just to say, I think if you put yourselves in the shoes of an adversary and you think about the joint force, um, you know, in many ways, you know, it, it, it's an enormously capable uh, system of systems, but it is also, if you think about it, uh, millions of humans who comprise uh, a large number of target audiences uh, and, and, and you could think of those as a very tempting smorgasbord of potential target audiences for information operations. And fortunately or unfortunately, depending on whether you're the adversary or not, fortunately, uh, uh, for example, certainly last year, Facebook uh, was uh, very kindly able to neatly identify, characterize and research um, uh, 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 the, the members of the uh, of the joint force, for example, you could sp specifically look to target uh, members of the joint force, uh, members of the U.S. military. Um, and if you think about China's AI power TikTok, um, as of last year, that was used by about um, uh, twenty one percent of U.S. adults, and by a staggering forty eight percent of those eighteen to twenty nine. And of course, as you know. Uh, a lot of the US military are younger people. So we can assume, and a lot of people who in the future will become members of the US military are now on TikTok, um, which is you know, fundamentally a Chinese platform. So uh, uh, this is a real uh, challenge. Uh, we're not the only ones thinking about this. If you think about it from the point of view of an adversary, this is a very tempting smorgasbord. And our challenge is how can we defend uh, uh, these humans within the joint force. Let's, let's jump on that challenge because as you've well put it, it's an opportunity for an adversary or well, let's back that up. It's an opportunity even for a peer competitor. I mean, let's face it, what you're dealing with is narratives. Narratives can be influential and by influencing individuals, both tacitly and explicitly, what you're really doing is you're, you're dictating bits of their cognitions. You're setting particular biases, predispositions, attitudes, and values. That's pretty strong. I mean, the, the level of control, again, both subtly and explicitly, that that could exercise could be profound, clearly providing at least something of a plus some advantage to, again, an adversary or a peer competitor. But I guess the question then is, I mean, we're talking about a smorgasbord of targets. Who is targetable? I mean, in, in your situation, being asked to write a report such as this, I think one of the key issues is recommendations. Part of those recommendations have to be recommendations for whom and about what. Who are we defending? Uh, I mean, this 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 gets to the heart of some of the difficulties of, of working on this space. So uh, just, just to give you some numbers. So there are currently, uh, and these, these figures were current last year. So there are currently around 1.3 million active, uh, active duty uh, service personnel in the US. Uh, uh, in, in addition to that, um, so about some 4 million uh, hold cl uh, clearances at secret or above. Uh, now, these uh, US people, in addition to that, you've got to think about their families. 
uh, often the most effective way to get to somebody, to influence somebody, is through their families or their social networks. This isn't anything new. This isn't anything uh, that people haven't known for millennia. But but that, that that's often the best way to get to people. So you are now talking about many millions of people. And given the geographical dispersion of the of the U.S. Uh, forces, they are distributed across across the world. So it it, it is a very difficult. Uh, it is a very large and amorphous group of people to defend. And, and in, inevitably, whenever you're dealing with that, you know, just sheer number of people, there will be people who have mental health problems. There will be people who have um, uh, gambling problems. There will be people who uh, are political extremists uh, of a wide variety of different flavours. That's just the nature of the uh, when you're dealing with any kind of large population, however well you screen it. Um, and and these are all people who 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 can be targeted. So I guess the question then is twofold. Number one, is, is there some way of producing a, a safe zone, a fail safe within these programs? And then number two, if the idea is to fail safe or to create safe zones, then it becomes very important to ask the key question: Well, what is it exactly we're defending them from? I mean, obviously, information that could be capricious, nefarious influential and negativistic ways, but how do we identify that information? And, and of course, given the ubiquity of that information on the internet and these new platforms, we have to ask what's old and what's new, and how do we then create that scenario to identify those things that are going to be problematic in terms of either being burdensome, risky, or more broadly threatening? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, that, you know, again, that's a great question. And this, this is part of the challenge. So and if there is no, you know, I don't think we can I don't think we can provide 100 percent security uh, uh, in these uh, against these challenges for a wide variety of reasons. Um, one of them is just the sheer scale. Uh, and the other is, is that, you know, which we're going to come on to later, hopefully, is, is that there will be significant issues around democratic compatibility. So, you know, the fact that you are the son or daughter of a U.S. Uh, uh, um, uh, US joint force member, does that mean that, um, you know, you, your private communications uh, should be monitored um, by the U.S. government uh, when you are just sitting there in Arkansas or wherever it is, or St. Louis or uh, uh, Chicago or whatever? And the answer is probably not. Uh, it, it, you know, uh, in most circumstances, definitely not in a variety of circumstances, perhaps in other circumstances. So that's, you know, it, 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 you're already raising very difficult uh, uh, issues. The, the not, well, not insuperable, let, let me just jump in here. Yeah. Let me just jump in for a quick question here, because I, I think it, it literally begs the question. If we're asking who are we defending, what are we defending them from? You do realize, I mean, particularly domestically, that there is a bit of suspicion that exists in the United States. And I think now increasingly globally with regard to the proliferation of surveillance, uh, the idea that, quote, big brother is watching. And here there's something of, of a paradox, perhaps even a dilemma. We're trying to protect people, agreed, by virtue of the paradigm that you propose. And what that involves is, as you may say, having to watch over them. But watching over them is just that. It's watching over them. And it, it, it conjures images of, a, if you will, a cognitive or computational panopticon. Yeah. How might we address that? I mean, so again, there are different, there, there are different ways to think about it. So, so if we look, for example, at uh, 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 different parts of this um, 
group. Um, so dif different different target audiences within the joint force and, and all those support networks that, that enable the joint force to function. So um, the uh, uh, those who have uh, security clearances, higher level security clearances, they uh, uh, necessarily have agreed to a level of surveillance. So you are not allowed, uh, or you're not supposed to, in a wide variety of different ways, um, to uh, you know run up vast gambling debts and not tell anybody about them, and so on and so forth. Uh, so there is an element of surveillance that that those people have agreed uh, to undertake, um, and, and and you know it, it is not you know I'm not saying anything secret here when I say that there are uh, uh, methods that people are now employing um, to uh, conduct more. Um, more ongoing uh, 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 surveillance of those groups of people. So the question then becomes, how do you do that in a way that is uh, compatible with um, you know, living in a free democracy? Um, and, and, and so in some ways for those people, the, the challenge then you can think about is counter espionage uh, at scale. So you're talking about, say around, I said about 4 million people with, with, with security clearances. Um, so this is a counter espionage uh, or one way of thinking about it for those people is this is a counter espionage at scale challenge in a digital world. Um, and, and, and again, I could say you could read the report, but there are obviously specific things you can do, uh, like, for example, testing uh, 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 small groups within those much larger populations. Uh, also, uh, and then using uh, known uh, adversarial or competitor contacts as seeds that, that enable you to conduct um, further uh, uh, examination uh, of uh, networks within the joint force and so on. Now, if you're then talking about the family members of the joint force, you know, to go to the other extreme, that is obviously a very different um, that is obviously a very different type of, of target population. And just to say, you know, we should assume that those populations will be targeted. And so there you're thinking much more about uh, how can we uh, help them to protect themselves often. So it's about things like uh, enabling, you know, making sure that they understand that these risks uh, occur, uh, giving them the um the tools often um, to protect to protect themselves, and and certainly short of wartime, that 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 is you know going to be the best we can do with that part of the population. And then between these two extremes, between security clearance, uh, uh, people who are particularly high level security clearance people on on the one hand, and 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 the families on the other hand, you know you then have a range of different um, uh, groups within the joint force and supporting the joint force. You've, you've thrown out the phrase short of wartime. But the reality of it is that we are in a state of global wartime. It, it may not be, quote, a world war per se, but the issue here is that there's explicit actions, for example, Russia and the Ukraine, and there are those things are far more tacit, clandestine, perhaps even covert. Uh, just today's newspaper headlines are warning of the possibility of some cyber influence from our transatlantic peer competitor, Russia, within the United States and within the EU. And although I think that's the sort of low-hanging fruit, you've done a wonderful job in describing a China-U.S. escalation scenario during a crisis that brings out a lot of the issues that, that you're bringing to the fore. So let's refocus the lens. I think that right now, it probably most conspicuous is our transatlantic peer competitor. But let's look in the other direction. Uh, clearly, the global power is balancing a little bit differently now in light of what's happening in the Ukraine. Let's talk about China's role. Let's talk about that escalation scenario that you've proposed. Exactly. I mean, I think I think this is one of the other things that we talk, uh, talked a little bit earlier about TikTok and so on. But now exactly, let's talk about 
how would one potentially use some of the new technologies, particularly AI powered digital technologies in a China US escalation scenario? So one can paint a variety of different sort of escalation scenarios, uh, for example, uh, Taiwan uh, catalyzed by Taiwan or catalyzed by the South China Sea or, or the Senkaku Daiyu Islands and so on. But, but let's just take a, a relatively, we'll put, put that to one side for a moment and just think about there is now a China-US escalation scenario, um, which, which is, is, has either gone kinetic or is about to go kinetic. So we're really at the, the you know, a, a, a lot of pieces are, are moving. A lot of things in the joint force are, 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 are in movement. So what would happen? So the first thing to say is that we know already, so what are the technologies? So we already know that there is mass personalization uh, of influence operations in retail. So things like Amazon uh, spend billions of pounds, uh, billions of dollars, uh, 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 understanding specific target audiences right down to the level of the individual and personalizing recommendations to individuals. The Chinese also do this and they're very, very good at it. They have corporations worth hundreds of billions of dollars who are very, very good at mass personalization, for example, within retail. So um, so a question would be, why would mass personalization not also be applied to information operations? Okay. So if you then think about the, the personal data uh, on members of the joint force, right? Uh, uh, things like, uh, and uh, so you've got, for example, a destroyer in, in the Pacific, and personal data on the people who are on that destroyer, but also personal data about their families and a variety of different support networks for that destroyer. So you've got things like medical data, TikTok use, financial data, romantic dating sites. Yeah, you have a lot of data about the individuals on that ship. Uh, and in addition to that, of about their families and friends and so on. There are a huge number of ways that you can then use that data to, in a personalized way, uh, affect the people on that ship. So to give you an example, um, you could uh, inject information about adultery, uh, 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 financial impropriety, uh, often things people are just embarrassed about. Um, uh, things about, you know, eating disorders, all sorts of, there are so many different you know, members of families. There are so many different things that are potentially, uh, you know, leverageable uh, within that kind of, um, within that kind of scenario. And that, and in addition to things that really happen, so you can then inject that into their social networks, the people on the ship, can you get, tell their family, you know, basically put it into the feeds of people uh, who are the friends of their families, for example, all of this is eminently doable. And, and uh, in addition to actual real data, you can also put, obviously put fake data in. So for, you know, for every one real uh, um, adulterous relationship that you expose of the captain of a destroyer in, in the Pacific that then affects his family, right? You can also uh, add in fake data, as we saw uh, with more exquisite attacks uh, that the Russians, for example, were using, uh, you know, over the past sort of decade or so uh, with higher profile um, uh, uh, people uh, in the US security apparatus. So I think, you know, we can think about it as 
mass personalization, the type of things that the, that the Russians were doing at a very high level could now be mass personalized across the joint force. Now, let's, let's work on that. Mass personalized data. And again, it goes back to the initial premise. We're dealing with ubiquity of information, data, data systems, how those are uptaken and used. I mean, each individual, for example, is a multidimensional data portal, right? both in terms of data intake and data output. So I guess the question then is, what can we do about it? I mean, you wrote about the 3D paradigm, detect, defend, and democratic compatibility. Let's dive into each of these in brief. What, what do we mean by that? So I think the first thing, I mean, in terms of detect, um, you know, the US must build the capabilities to detect and characterize adversary influ influence operations against the joint force. So before you can really think about defending, though that, that's obviously critical, you've got, you've got to be able to, to, to detect a lot of these, um, a lot of these campaigns. Um, and if you're start, if you're thinking about that uh, now, in some ways, you can think, what would adversaries like us to do, right? What would adversaries like the U.S. to do? They probably like the U.S. to uh, try and build, um, try and do essentially what a lot of the big tech companies wanted to do, which was to build um, AI heavy, use a lot of technology, a lot of AI heavy uh, responses um, that uh, um, also have a lot of difficulty um, uh, 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 going um, looking at uh, uh, influence campaigns that cross over from things that are happening outside the US into the uh, domestic uh, US information um, sort of set of networks. So things that go from outside to inside the US. Um, that, that's probably what you'd want if you were an adversary. And so I think what the US needs to do is build counterintelligence at scale to detect is the detect part to build counterintelligence at scale. And that's going to require integrated human, AI, and organizational capabilities. And it's going to have to think about detecting adversary information operations at scales of relevance uh, going all the way from a few individuals all the way through to millions of individuals. So I think that's really, you know, that's the first thing to say. And the second thing to say is that part of this is about detecting how adversaries will also shape the terrain over years. And I've said this uh, and it becomes very, un it, it, it's, it's very unfashionable, but, you know, I think it is absolutely bonkers uh, that TikTok uh, is allowed to operate so freely um, in the US and its allies. Hmm. But defense... So in terms of defense, I think a lot of this is about um, making the individuals tougher targets um, and making uh, now. But, but a lot of where the problem then comes down is that's not saying it's all up to the individual because it's not. A lot of the things uh, that will need to be done uh, to defend individuals can only be done at organizational uh, organizational scales and can only also be done uh, when you think over this over the course of years. So let's think about defending an individual at, at the sort of human, the individual human scale. So one thing is um, to make the joint force uh, less vulnerable, to enhance social, family, and mental support, for example, with particular focus on predictable periods of vulnerability, like moving between postings and so on. Now this isn't very fashionable, but it is important. 
Another thing would be to give individuals a technological means to defend themselves online. Um, Low-cost practical options exist, things like NewsGuard. Um, other people have tried to produce them. I myself have tried, tried to produce one in, in some work that I was doing um, with rather ac academics and, and originally sort of uh, with some interest from DARPA. But, it, you know, it's, it's hard. There is no money going into helping individuals to defend themselves. So then you need to think about defending individuals, individuals at the organizational scale. And one of the things is, for example, do we really think that the medical data of the service personnel and the joint force is well protected? Um, do we think that a wide variety of other you know, things about data of, of, of individuals in the joint force are, are well protected? I would say probably not. Uh, and in addition to that, against what is now the conventional wisdom, I think we need to build silos for data. One of the great problems with the Office of Personnel Management hack was that there was a giant data lake with too much information in it. That information should have been siloed. And one of the advantages, like the reason why the CIA wasn't so, so badly affected is because their data was held separately. So I think data silos separating data is critical. That's something that happens at the organizational scale. And then the far, uh, last thing I'd say again on, on the defense side is uh, we need to defend against the shaping of the information terrain over years. Um, and that part of that's building in defensive advantages for the US and its allies in the information terrain and preventing competitors developing strategic advantage via platforms like TikTok. Yeah, but there's a balance to be struck here for sure. I mean, in open societies such as we have in the United States and those societies of many of the United States' international military and economic allies, personal freedoms are valued. And so I guess the question here is these ideas of detection, which involves surveillance, defense, which in some cases can join certain restrictions and constraints on what individuals might see as their freedoms and or the insertion of some oversight, governmental oversight, institutional oversight. How do we make this compatible with, with democratic institutions? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, that, that, that's a critical question because again, you say, what, what is it that an adversary would definitely want uh, you know, us in the West to do? And one of the things they would like us to do is to massively overreact, build our own surveillance state, uh, and then they could point to us and say, oh, isn't this a disaster? Look, those guys are no different to us. And in addition to that, that will be, you know, storing up a, will damage our, our uh, uh, democratic systems uh, and our freedoms. And it will be, you know, it, it basically, so overreacting is, is a very bad thing to do. So we need to think very carefully about how we build these systems in ways that democratically uh, compatible. And so let me just give you four ways that, that can be done. So one thing is that we need to maintain the seam between domestic and foreign, right? Which is critical. We can't just say that, um, uh, you know, that for example, that the NSA needs to have different rules for, for, for looking at people in the United States, US citizens in the United States versus looking at people who are, for example, in China or Russia. The rules need to be different. But on the other hand, we also need to think about how we bridge the seam between domestic and foreign, because that is a seam that we know adversaries will try and exploit. So the first thing would be to maintain the seam between domestic and foreign and manage the vulnerabilities, the inevitable vulnerabilities that that brings. A second thing would be that some detection and defensive capabilities carry fewer risks to democracy, such as enhancing social and mental health support than others, such as building offensive information capabilities that can then be turned inwards, you know, inwards within the United States. So secondly, focus on those 
um, a, a greater emphasis should be placed on safer options. Third is to build robust ethics into the cultures and processes of the organizations and individuals who are charged with detecting and defending against adversary information operations. Okay, there are ways of doing that. And fourth, I'd say that to ensure existing frameworks for democratic oversight are fit for current and near future technologies, such as digital counterintelligence at scale. And this can be done. Uh, to give you an example, GCHQ, which is the uh, UK equivalent of uh, the NSA, uh, is in some ways a bit more uh, aggressive uh, than the NSA, even in, in some of the things that it does. And yet we had, you know, with SMA, the, the, the Pentagon, we had a former director of GCHQ who has worked uh, long and hard on the ethics of um or the ethics of uh, 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 digital um, uh, digital uh, uh, espionage and counter espionage, and you know has produced a series of practical guidelines that can help guide these types of organisations. Uh, I think the, the practical applications are, are going to are, are needing to be not only put in place but evaluated as we go. Clearly, what you're describing is a work in progress. And I think it becomes important for our listeners to understand is that progress reports on that work in progress need to be done in relatively real time. And it needs to be responsive and flexible, and in some cases fungible, so as to be able to remain on the cutting edge of not only capability, but of defensibility for an, an ever more capable set of international peer competitors. Nick, it's always a pleasure. We'll have to come back and talk to us some more about this in the future. Welcome you back. Thanks very much, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Special thanks to our guests this week and to you, our listening audience. Subscribe to your favorite podcast channel to join us next time for another episode of Clear and Present.